Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us again today on Back to the Bible Canada. As we continue our series on 1 Corinthians with Dr. Neufeld, we'll examine what the Church of Christ is all about. So let's turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, for this message called, Learning to Boast in the Lord. I dream of a day when it will be impossible to live in this country without having to decide what to do with Jesus. It seems obvious to me that at this time in the history of Canada, it is possible to grow up, go to school, go to university and trade school, read books and listen to the media, get a job, save money, enjoy leisure, retire, and finally die without ever being confronted with Christ, his love and his cross, and about the necessity of responding to him. What is so desperately needed is a revitalized church that is able to speak to every single strata of Canadian culture. We need many good churches in this country. The need has never been greater than today. But that brings us to an important question. What makes a good church? What do they look like and what are their key ingredients? And how do they impact the wider culture around them? I'm sure we all have opinions about that. We've all have an internal picture of a good church. Some will say a good church has great preaching. And some will point out that it needs great worship, contemporary or traditional, gospel, country. I mean, you name it. Some will mention a great youth program. And others will say a church needs to be cutting edge, either in technology or organization or in using the media to get the message out. But others will mention an emphasis on meeting people's felt needs and speaking to their real-life situations. Some will mention size, and that's really an interesting one. Some will say a great church is a big church, and others will say, no, no, it has to be a small church. And some speak about the church's impact into the community, perhaps ministering to the poor. Some say it's an ancient liturgy, and others say it's the absence of liturgy. Examples just go on and on. Everyone has an idea as to what makes a great church and what it takes to reach the nation. And I'm thinking about the Christian church in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. The Apostle Paul had arrived in that city in A.D. 50, preached the gospel wherever he could, seen people come to Christ, and established a church. And all seemed well until some time later, when he's in Ephesus, Paul gets word that the church is in trouble. The church was deeply divided. There were at least four factions in the church, and I'm sure that if you asked for what made a great church, all four groups would have had a fairly different answer to that question. But the more we read this letter, it seems quite apparent that all four groups would have been wrong, for all groups missed the real nature of the church's effectiveness. According to the Apostle Paul, a great church is one that boasts in the Lord. Just so you understand it, a great church doesn't boast in itself, but it is conscious of and overwhelmed with the power of the cross, and not the power of the resources they have or the vision they have. John MacArthur once said, some people get so caught up in their own holiness that they look at the Trinity for a possible vacancy. (laughs) I think that's kind of funny, but let me try to rephrase that. Some churches get so caught up in their own greatness, they look to God to stand back and admire and give them praise and thanks for what they have accomplished for him. Kind of ridiculous, isn't it? I'm going to end up saying that a great church is not a great church at all. They're made of people who are not great people at all. I know that sounds confusing, but let's try to work with that a bit. In 1 Corinthians 1.26, Paul begins by reminding the church of something, if they had taken the time to acknowledge it, might have humbled them just a little. 
Paul writes, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. You know, that's an interesting list. The wise are probably a reference to the educated and the ingenious. But Paul adds, according to worldly standards, that is, according to the judgments of unregenerate people. They aren't impressed with you. And then he adds, not many were powerful. And that means not many of you had political connections. So, no inroads into the power structures of the city. And then he adds, not many had noble birth. In the day in which Paul was writing, unless something very unusual or exceptional happened, one would not normally rise up the social ladder. There was a privileged elite in the culture, and there was simply no way of breaking in. Now consider what might have been the criticism of Paul's leadership in Corinth. His track record showed that he was unable to break into the elite in Corinth. He was the wrong man with a wrong message who had produced a disappointing and unimpressive congregation. Change was needed, new leadership, new vision. I want you to listen to an ancient voice. This is a voice of criticism describing the ancient Christian church. It's the Roman philosopher Celsus, and he's writing in the year AD 178. And here's what he thinks about Christians and the church. He says, let no cultured person draw near, none wise and none sensible for all that kind of thing we count evil. But if any man is ignorant, if any man is wanting in sense and culture, if anybody is a fool, let him come boldly, that is, to the Christian church. We see them in their own houses, wool dresses, cobblers, the worst, the vulgarest, the most uneducated persons. They're like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nests or frogs holding a symposium around a swamp or worms convening in mud. (laughs) Wow. I take it that Celsus was less than impressed with Christians, shall we say. And yet these people turned the world upside down. In just a few years, those frogs in a swamp, I don't know, maybe he's just talking about their choir, but whoever he was talking about, those frogs in a swamp, those worms in the mud actually changed the face of an empire. So how can that happen with substandard people preaching a foolish message? And that's Paul's point to the church in Corinth. It was never about their abilities in the first place. That's why it was so silly to form into factions around who was the most able teacher among them. Now, just to set this up a bit, I want you to imagine Jesus' great challenge. He was going to build not just a local church, but the universal church spanning the entire globe, reaching out to thousands and thousands of different culture and language groups in order to present the message of the gospel to the whole world. So in order to do that, the very first thing he needed to do was to pick out 12 men, 12 men whom he could train and then charge with the task of setting down the foundation of his program for the world. Now, here's the question. If that were you doing the choosing today, who would you pick? How many of you would say, oh, I know a couple of big bruisers who work as longshoremen over at the docks. And yeah, I know this guy in the income tax department. I think he'd be involved in some kind of a fraud scam, but I think he can change and he'll be all right. And I know this guy with a criminal record. Well, maybe he doesn't have one, but he probably should have one. Anyway, I know this guy. How many of us would choose people like that? But that's what Jesus did. He got a few guys off the fishing boats, one a tax collector, probably a dishonest and greedy one at that, and one was a terrorist because that's who the zealots were. It's almost unthinkable, but that's who he would choose. He did, and here's the conclusion. If that's what God did with the mudworms of the early church, what will he do with us? 
Notice again the qualifications of the people in the church in Corinth. They were people with no qualifications. Now, just to be clear, Paul says not many were wise. There were some in the Corinthian church who were considered leaders in their city, but not many. We do know that in verse 1, Paul mentions a man by the name of Sosthenes. We do know that he was the ruler of the Jewish synagogue in Corinth, so I guess he was a somebody, but just barely. According to Acts 18.17, his own community thought he so badly bungled the relationship with the law courts when bringing charges against the apostle Paul. They beat him up on the open streets, so I'm taking it that by the time that Paul writes 1 Corinthians, Sosthenes is definitely not a synagogue ruler anymore. So maybe he was a nobody as well. Why am I telling you all this stuff? The answer is that the Corinthians were made up of nobodies. And that's not just unique to them. It has, in fact, been God's pattern. The right kind of people are people who have nothing to offer God. Now look at the next three words found in verse 27. But God chose. We have nothing to offer, but God had something to offer. His calling. So what makes a great church? People who have no qualifications to offer God, but also people who have been called. Look at verse 27 again. But God chose what is foolish. Then later in verse 27, God chose what is weak. And then in verse 28, God chose what is low and despised. The wording here sounds so similar to the wording found in James 2 verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? The point in James and in Paul is not that those who are rich are never chosen. You remember 1 Timothy 6, 17, Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, that's an instruction to rich Christians who are prone to their own particular temptations. They will be tempted to assume their riches give them advantages over others. So they're going to have to be particularly vigilant against the temptations that befall them. And so they must subject themselves to an intentional humility, a humility that comes more easily among those who have nothing. See, that's God's purpose, however. He chooses nobodies. And when we come back, We're going to see that God calls those who have nothing to commend themselves in any way. And God's pleased when we have nothing to boast about in our own. I think that the theme of what it means to boast in the Lord is just so relevant and applicable across every generation, not only for the church, but for us as individuals as well. It's so clear that Paul's passion for this church is that they would grasp the importance of exalting God above themselves and proclaiming his message all for his glory and not their own. Well, after the break, Dr. Neufeld will further explain the kind of people that God chooses to represent his church. Dr. John's newest Bible teaching series, The Adventure of Prayer, is available to you this month on CD as our free ministry gift. Have you struggled with prayer? You know it's important, but have always felt your prayer life wasn't what it ought to be. Well, Dr. John wants to encourage and equip you. Prayer ought to be a joy, ought to be an adventure, ought to be powerful, and this five-message series just may change your prayer life. So call us today. Or if you'd rather listen online via podcast or mobile app, the series is available on all of these mediums so that the maximum number of people have free access to quality, trustworthy Bible teaching. 
To request your copy on CD, or if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, call us right now at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. We've been looking at the qualifications of people who are chosen by God. 1 Peter 2.4 begins this way, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Notice the contrast, rejected by men, chosen by God. That's what Paul wants to tell the Corinthians. Nobody in Corinth thought much of you. They dismiss you as nobodies, but God took note of you and he took you in. Now, God's actions are never without purpose. God always acts for his own glory. Why would he choose these people? I don't know how many of you remember a little game in grade school that went like this. Two captains are chosen, and they pick the members of their team taking turns. That's when the rest of us find out how athletic or how popular we actually are. And when you are picked first, wow, you're the man or you're the woman. Chosen carries with it a sense of prestige and privilege and position. But look at it from God's perspective. I'm reading from verses 27 to 29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We've been looking at the qualifications for people who make up an effective church. They are people of no qualifications at all, but they have been called by God. And now we realize why God called them. They are people whose lives can only be explained by God. You want to know why God chose you? Because apparently God wanted someone who is foolish, weak, and lowly just to show what a great God he is. Let me explain that further. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's an amazing image, and I like to play with that just a bit. I want you to imagine your life is like a broken-down old clay pot. No, not that expensive crystal vase that makes a certain noise when you ping it. Not that ornate piece of china that has a pure gold edge to it. Or even some ancient piece of pottery that has great value. No, just an old clay pot of no particular value. But inside that pot is a treasure of infinite worth, a treasure worth more than the combined fortunes of the world's richest men and women. It's priceless. And that's who you are as a believer. And why are you like that? God wants to use the old clay pot to showcase his treasure. Or to put it in terms of 1 Corinthians, God wants to make sure that no flesh, no human being made of flesh and bone would boast in the presence of God. Now, I suspect this news can be either super encouraging or super discouraging. Imagine a 13-year-old girl in high school trying to share her faith with her classmates. Sometimes she wonders if she has anything to say, but deep inside herself, she believes that God has placed her into her school next to these classmates to be God's representative, to be an ambassador of the eternal God to her classmates and friends. And then she comes to a conclusion. I just can't do it. I'm a nobody. And then she hears the voice of God. That's why I chose you, so that when I work through you, everyone will know that the power is mine and not yours. Now, that's incredibly encouraging. 
Now contrast that with a 50-year-old high-powered business person who can't imagine that anything gets done without him. That news is discouraging to him. It all depends on your perspective. So you can see what makes a great church. It takes the right kind of people, people who consider themselves nobodies, but who are so convinced that there is a power that lies in God that can only be explained by God. People who will boast in the Lord. It takes the right kind of people. It also takes the right kind of message. The power in the Corinthian church is always in what they preached and in what they believed and not in what they accomplished for God. Let's read 1 Corinthians 1, 30-31. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. I want to explain those two verses in reverse order. Notice the conclusion Paul states is found in verse 31. That's a quote from Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. Let me read that to you. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. See, the greatest thing that a church or the people of God have is the boast that we know a great God. And in fact, that's the only thing that we can boast in. And that's what the message of the cross teaches. Foolishness to some, power to others, says Paul. And so in a very short verse, verse 30, Paul puts into a nutshell what the message of the cross looks like in the life of the church. First, he says, Jesus Christ became to us wisdom from God. See, that's a message that teaches us wisdom or how to live well. See, that's what wisdom means in the Bible. Wisdom teaches us how to live. It teaches us how to live in school, how to live at work, how to live as a widow when you feel all alone, how to have a good marriage, how to raise your children, how to earn and spend your money, how to handle life when everything changes, like when you're an immigrant, you've come to a new country. Wisdom teaches you how to live well. And that message of wisdom is in the cross. The cross teaches us humility and self-sacrifice and the value of suffering, even unjustly. It teaches us how to love our enemies. It teaches us to remember that God's goals are sometimes unseen by human beings. It teaches us that some things that look like defeat in the eyes of the world are, in fact, great victories. We have a message in the cross that teaches us how to live well in every circumstance. Now, in essence, God's wisdom is both instant and progressive. The minute we're saved, we have already received the message of the cross. But it's also progressive. The more we meditate on the meaning of the cross, the more its meaning is felt in every area of our life, even for the Corinthians in teaching them to be united in the midst of their divisions. Now, Paul says, Christ has become wisdom, and then he adds three more things, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. These three are the great benefits from the wisdom of the cross. See, there is a message that provides us with all that we need. So let's examine those three words again, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. They're really a description of the wisdom of God. Righteousness describes our standing before God. Righteousness has been credited to our account through the cross, whose righteousness has been imputed to us. Now, the next word is the word sanctification. 
I think this is not so much an emphasis on our status before God, but the emphasis here is on the process of God working in and through our lives in unity and in character and in behavior. And redemption, the last of this series of words, means that we have been purchased from our slavery to the world and the flesh and the devil, and we have been given to God. Now, when we started, we began by stating the great need. We said that the people of our culture, that is, the people in our country, would hear the message. We want a day when it'd be impossible to live in this land without having to decide what to do with Jesus. We pointed out that what we so desperately needed in this land are revitalized churches that will be able to take the message of the gospel and make it heard. And I still believe that. But Paul challenges us that what we really need is to believe more than anything else. There needs to be a settled confidence in the power of the message of the cross. It really is all right to be no more than a clay pot if we would be but confident that in this clay pot is a treasure so vast, so rich, and that this treasure, the cross, is the power of God for the salvation of anyone who believes. Heavenly Father, May we find in the church today more than all that we need in the cross of Jesus. May our confidence not be in how well we preach or how well we do anything else, but may it be only in this. The simplicity of the cross is more than enough. Amen. John, you know, I don't want to be a nobody. That's what sort of comes to mind after we talked a little bit. Uh, Can you give us a better sense and a definition of that? Because I'm sure that's how a lot of people are feeling, but I think it means something different, doesn't it? It sure does. We are created in the image of God, and so as that, we're certainly not a nobody. Those of us who have come to know Christ as our Savior and Lord have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We've been adopted into the family of God. We've been brought into relationship with God. He knows us by name. And so in that sense, everything in the world is made of us. But here's our difficulty. When we start to believe that I contribute something or add something to the grace of God, I think that's where my difficulties lie. You and I need to come to the conclusion that there is nothing we can actually do for God that's significant. I mean, God is able to do everything in and of himself. Um, I have sometimes heard uh, individuals say, you know, well, God has no hands but our hands. Well, I've got news for you. God's hands are actually not cut off. He is able to do significantly more than we can do. The reality is that God has allowed us by his grace to be a part of the ministry, and that's simply an act of grace. And it's not as if we contribute something to God, but what God does is he pours his grace into us. So only in that sense, we should not think that we're contributing to God. Thanks, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Today might be the day for you to consider becoming a Back to the Bible Canada monthly partner. You know, hundreds of people from coast to coast to coast have chosen to support the Bible teaching ministries of Back to the Bible Canada in this way. They've become a part of the foundation of this ministry. You know, your monthly gift, whether it's 10, 50, 100, or $500, sustains this Bible teaching ministry, including the daily program you're listening to right now. So if you've been blessed and challenged by this ministry, 
and want to invest in the ongoing Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld, well, give us a call today or sign up online. Choose to become a monthly partner. Call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible monthly partners, together we teach the Bible.